Well, it was Father's Day nine years ago that Denise and I actually took on the role officially as the senior pastors here at church. Nine years ago, man, it's, yeah. Denise was just, she's like, baby, it doesn't seem that long. It seems like 9E. And I said, no, it doesn't. No, she didn't say that. So, uh, so today being Father's Day, I, I want to take a few moments to talk about the founder of this church. My dad, Kenneth R. Goins. There's no question. I had an incredible upbringing. Uh, I, I mean, my mom and dad, they, they, they were just great people. Here, here's the thing. Mom and dad got some things wrong in raising, in, in raising us and pastoring, but they got a whole lot more stuff right raising us. And so my, my dad taught me a lot growing up. He, he, he was my baseball coach uh, through many of my years, through T-ball, on up through Pony League. I don't know, is Pony League even a thing nowadays? But it was back then. And, and my dad was coach. And he was my biggest cheerleader when it came to playing football. I, I mean, him and mom were on the, you could hear them above everybody else. Come on, if you were ever in church with my mom and dad, you know, you can hear them above everybody. In fact, we were watching, uh, we were doing rehearsal for a Century's uh, production, and they were showing some of the new people one of the videos, and I could hear my mom, because it was like three years ago, Mom, oh, yeah, she was just screaming. I was like, that's my mom. That's her. That's her. But my dad taught me a lot. He taught me how to work. He taught me that nothing in life comes free. You work for it. You earn it. He taught me how to ride a bicycle, how to ride a motorcycle, taught me how to swim. Now, granted, that swimming was, hey, I'm going to throw you in the pool. Learn how to swim or go to the bottom. Uh, but he taught me how to swim. Come on, how many parents remember that? Well, oh, look at that. You can swim. I knew it. But uh, he taught me how to swim. Uh, him being a former Golden Glove champion, he taught me how to take care of myself. Uh, but he didn't stop with those things. My dad also taught me what it looks like to be a man in love with Jesus and people. My dad taught me what a godly father and husband looks like in this life. My dad taught me to own up to my mistakes and how to apologize. My dad taught me how to respond when you've been hurt by a church that you poured your life into or by people that called you friends. My dad showed me what it looks like to take a leap of faith and do what you feel like God is telling you to do even when it doesn't make sense. See, my dad, before he started this church, him and mom, 30, was it 38 years ago? Um, they, my dad had a thriving AC business. Uh, he, 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 was, he, took, he was a repair, uh, HVAC repairman, had a thriving business. And he sold, when he felt like God said, come up here, he sold it, sold it all. So he showed me what it looks like to take a leap of faith. He taught me what it looks like to pursue the kingdom of God, even though he may not have fully understood what that looked like. And I don't still fully understand. That's why we're in this series, looking it up. My dad was one of the greatest, if not the greatest man I ever knew. And I consider it a compliment. Anytime somebody comes up and tells me, you sound like your dad or you look like your dad. I, a lot of times I'll call somebody on the phone and they'll say, man, you sound just like your dad. My Aunt Shirley was here a couple of weeks ago. The first thing out of her mouth was, Kelly, you look more and more like your dad every day. 
And I consider it a compliment. I even find myself doing some of the things that my dad did. Uh, like my dad had this laugh that you know was him. <laughs> and I find myself, I was like, where did that come from? Oh, well, I spent time with my dad, so I know where it came from. Or this thing he would do when he was thinking. That little tongue, you see the tip of his tongue, he was thinking. I find myself doing those things and just being around my dad so much, watching my dad, listening to my dad. I don't know what without even realizing it, I found that I picked up on so many things he said, his mannerisms, the way he did things. I had these identity markers that I could not deny that my dad was Kenneth R. Coins. Now that I'm older, my kids are older, I look at them, they've got a lot of identity markers that tell people they are Kelly R. Goins' kids. Um, they're, they're all, all my kids are very adventurous. Uh, they'll try anything at least once, even if I have to coax them into it. I'll never forget, we were in Mexico, and we were jumping off these cliffs, and uh, we'd, we'd all jumped. Uh, Zion, even little Zion, he was, I forget how old he was. How He, he jumped, he didn't care. His feet was like, cliff was like 24 feet high, and he jumped off. And Sheridan was up there, and she's like, I don't think, so we decided, okay, let's, Sheridan's not going to jump. So we were going to swim over to the other side where she could walk. I turn around. And I hear my mom and Denise. She's coming. She's jumping. And here goes Sheridan just flying off the, off the side of the cliff. They all love movies. They all love music. Uh, they're all extremely talented. Uh, they're all very outspoken, especially if they're passionate about something. Uh, uh, even, uh, you know, they're very passionate about things even to a fault. These are identity markers that all of my kids have. But there is one of my kids that got the short end of the stick when it comes to being more like me than any of my other kids. And that is our middle daughter. No, it's not Kennedy. It is not Kennedy. It is Sheridan Grace Goins. Um, this poor girl. There is no denying that she is my daughter. Uh, some of the things that she, uh, I, I say she, she bites her nails. I, I, I bite my nails. She is stubborn. I'm not so much as Denise is. I'm, she can have a bad attitude at times. But she's also very loving and compassionate and forgiving. Uh, she is very passionate about things, even to a fault. And she's like me. My wife will say, you don't have to yell. I'm like, I'm not yelling. I just really feel good, strong about this. And my wife will tell me, babe, just bring it down. She doesn't hold grudges. Doesn't hold on to things. And she looks like me. She is a pretty version of me. <laughs> All of my kids have these identity markers that say, hey, they're, they're Kelly going to this kid. And as I think about Father's Day, and I think about the series that we've been in, uh, the kingdom, this, this call as followers of Jesus, that we have been given the mandate to bring the culture of heaven to earth. When Jesus said, hey, pray like this, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we've been given that mandate. When I think about that, what does that look like? What, it makes me wonder, what are the identity markers of a follower of Jesus, a real follower of Jesus? 
Not someone who's just Christian in name only. Come on now. Are you following me? But a real, what are the real identity markers of someone who's truly experiencing bringing heaven to earth? Here's one of the major identity markers that I think we, that we, we, we overlook. and The church has overlooked for a long time. And if you're taking notes, it's your first note. One of the identity markers of a follower of Jesus is progress. Progress. You should make progress in your walk with Christ. See, here's what I mean. Following Jesus, praying that prayer is not a life that is stationary. Following Jesus implies movement. Are you hearing me? If you're following Jesus but you're standing still, I would say you're not following Jesus. You're watching him, but you're not following him. Following implies movement. When we call ourselves follower of Jesus, it implies action, truth. I'm not interested in coming to church so that we can just get together and have a nice tingly feeling when the worship band sings a good song or when I make a good point and we all get, this, get these little tingles. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in making change. I grew up in a church like that where I saw a lot of people that called themselves Christians but did not have the identity markers of their Heavenly Father. I grew up watching people that would get all emotional, that would run the aisles, that would shout, jump up and down, fall out in the Spirit. I am for all of that. But here's my biggest issue from the church I grew up in. A lot of those people that I saw do that were some of the rudest and meanest people outside the church you would ever meet. And it left me wondering, is that an identity marker of a follower of Jesus? Is that what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus? Where you get saved, give your heart to Jesus, but then nothing else, nothing ever changes about your life? If you were a jerk, you're still a jerk, you'll always be a jerk. Listen, I understand. It's like what Casey preached from a, uh, talked from my brother yesterday, and he he made this statement about us being royalty. He said, "Listen, I know what it's like to go from being a royal A to royalty." Some of y'all, some of y'all, that'll hit you on the way home. Here's the thing: when you get saved, if that's what you are, that's fine. But there should be a progression. Ten, fifteen, twenty years from now, you should not still be a jerk and be rude to people. Come on. If you were a racist when you got saved, come on. Five years out, you should not still be a racist. Oh, man, it's about to get real in here. I grew up watching it, and it left me wondering, man, what, is that what it looks like to follow Jesus? A follower of Jesus should be marked by progress, by change. When my kids were little, uh, they wanted to do everything Daddy did. I mean, it, it, whatever I did, man, they were on my heels all the time. And, and, and they thought if, that, if Dad did it, well, I could do it. And, and they watched me, and they watched everything I did. Now my grandkids, I'll see them doing everything, doing the same thing, and my wife will get on to me when I, when I, when I tell uh, 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 Juno, I say, oh, you a little poo-poo head. Don't say that. She's going to say it. I was like, well, poo-poo head better than the alternative. So... And so, but I understand they're watching me. They're watching me. Dads, they're watching you. Whether, whether it's your blood child, whether it's a foster child, whether it's someone living in your home or someone you do life with, they are watching you. 
In fact, I'll say this. They're becoming many use. Oh, thank you, man. They're watching. They're following. They're imitating. Can I tell you, that's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Where you watch. You imitate. You hear how Jesus talks. You see how he responds. You watch what he does. And then if you're following Jesus, that's what you do. That's what you do. We live life according to Jesus. And here's what's funny. When you begin to live that life and you're just watching Jesus, you're following Jesus, you're listening to him, you're imitating, then suddenly out of nowhere you'll hear yourself laugh and you'll go like, that sounds like my father. That sounds like Jesus. You'll find yourself, uh, some, somebody does something to you and you respond differently than you normally would. And you're like, what just happened? I responded like Jesus would. I, I didn't respond by telling them they were number one with the wrong finger. I responded differently. We're talking about real things here. And what happens is you get so focused on watching Jesus. You get so focused on how he does, hearing him talk like he does, and without even realizing it, those things begin to develop inside of you and become identity markers that you are a follower of Jesus. See, following Jesus isn't just praying a prayer to be saved. Following Jesus is focusing in on him and keeping your focus there. And I don't know, but that's how I want to live my life, focused on Jesus. I want it to be where somewhere 20 down the road, 20 years down the road, someone says, man, Kelly, how did you get here? How did you develop? And I was like, I don't really know. I was just following Jesus. And then 20 years later, I'm a different man than what I was. That's how focused I want to be on what Jesus is doing. Listen, if, if the past 18 months have shown us anything, is that this world is broken, it's full of pain and disappointments, challenges, and it doesn't need just a place on Sunday morning where they can come and feel good about themselves. It needs a group of people that understand that an identity marker of a Christian is progress and change and focusing in on Jesus and watching how he does things. I want to live a life of purpose. Anybody else? I want you to live a life of purpose. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 14. If you're new here, some of you are saying, is this guy ever going to read the Bible? Uh, let's go there, Matthew 14. We've been in this series, The Kingdom of God. Kingdom of God was something that was very important to Jesus. In fact, in the Gospels alone, the four Gospels, it gets, it gets mentioned at least 126 times. The book of Matthew alone has mentions the kingdom of God at least 50 times. Well, in, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized by who? John, John the Baptist. He gets baptized by John. Who was John as it relates to Jesus? His cousin. They were cousins. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this. They were co-workers in this kingdom agenda. Because if you study John, John was preparing the way for when Jesus, the Messiah, would walk on the scene. Jesus loved John. He loved John. He was his cousin. He had, he had relationship. Well, John was a prophet. And as most prophets were, they were he was very outspoken. In fact, he was hated by King Herod. And here's why he was hated by King Herod. Because King Herod had taken his brother's wife and was sleeping with her. And so anytime Herod was out around the city or addressing his people and John the Baptist was there, 
sleeping with his brother's wife. That's what he would do. He would announce what Herod was doing and, and what was going on. And Herod hated John the Baptist, but he was afraid to do anything about it because the people respected John so much. And he's afraid if I kill him, if I do something, well, the people are going to rise up and rebel uh, against him. And well, it happens to be Herod's birthday. Herod's throwing this big birthday bash. A lot of drinking is going on. And Herod's niece, uh, his wife's daughter, his you know, was there. Herod asked her to dance for him and his guests. She basically does this strip tease for her uncle and his drunk friends. And, and, and they're all in this drunken state of mind. And out of his drunken state, seeing her, he makes this oath. He says, hey, ask me for anything you want at the half the kingdom and it's yours. Well, she gets excited. She goes home and says, Mom, here's what Herod said. That I could ask because of the dance I did. I could ask for anything up to half the kingdom. And he, he would give it to me. What should I ask for? Well, his wife, Herodias, she hated John even more. And she says, go back and tell him you want the head of John the Baptist. So she goes back. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Matthew 14. Verse 9. The king was distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Verse 12. John's disciples came, took his body, they buried it, and they went and told Jesus. They go to Jesus. Hey, Jesus. Your cousin's just been murdered by Herod. And look at Jesus' reaction to this news. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. What's Jesus trying to do here? He's trying to get a long time. He's just heard the tragic news. His cousin, the guy he loved, friend, has been murdered. He's like, I just want to get away, guys. I just want to, want, want to get away. And look what happens next in verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. and It's get, already getting late. Send the crowd away so they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. I really believe that the disciples had Jesus' interest at heart in this because they knew the character of Jesus. That Jesus was hurt, he was tired, he was worn out. And Jesus' character, even though he was hurt, would be, hey, let's just stay as long as the people need it. And the disciples, you know, the disciples were hurt too. They knew John. And so they come to Jesus and they're like, hey, hey, come on, let's come up with a plan. It's getting late, this place is in the middle of nowhere. Let's just send the crowds away so they can eat. Look what Jesus does in verse 16. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. The disciples answered, we have only uh, five fish, and, or uh, five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus said, bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. 
Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. Verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. If you've heard me talk about this before, most theologians say the crowd there that day was somewhere between fifteen to 20,000 people. Because it says just the men. didn't include the women and the children. So here's what I want you to understand. While the people were rejoicing, while the people were getting their miracles, while people were, hey, look, and, and they were being satisfied, this is one of the hardest days of Jesus' life. So how did Jesus deal with pain? How did Jesus deal with loss? The Bible says he withdrew from the crowd. I, I mean, we're talking about the same Jesus who would later on and and. and and in the days to come would face humiliation, who would be beaten, who would be put up on a cross. Yet when he hears that his cousin John, his friend, a man he loves, ha has been murdered, I've, got, I've just got to get away. He withdraws. And by the time Jesus gets to the place where he, his usual go-to, I'm sure Jesus said, hey guys, let's go to where I normally go. Get away. The Bible says that when he finally gets there, he looks out. He sees the pain and the brokenness of all the people there that day. And Jesus, after proclaiming, hey, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here. In his pain, he begins to minister to the people. So what does it look like to really actually be a follower of Jesus? What are some of the identity markers? I want to give you what I believe are absolute some uh, identity markers when it comes to following Jesus that we get from the story. The first one is this. There are times you must withdraw so that you don't give up. There are times that you just need to get away from the crowd. The noise, social media. Come on, the news, politics, the voices. But here's the question. Where do you withdraw to? Because where or who you withdraw to really matters when you're in that situation. Where do you go? Where do you turn? To whom do you turn? Is it a relationship? Online chat? Is it a pill? A shot? A shopping spree? Is it silence? Depression? Is it online gambling? Is it a drink? Where do you turn? Because here's the truth, guys. I don't believe that pornography is always a lust issue. I don't believe that oxy, Percocet, a pill, or drink. I don't believe it's always an addiction issue. What I believe a lot of times it is, is I just need to escape. I just need to get away from everything. I believe a lot of times... We just want to escape if, if only for a moment. People get to a point where they're like, well, I can't really quit my job. I can't up and leave my family. I can't just uh, abandon everything. So I'll find something or someone to escape. See, there's a difference between escaping and withdrawing. Are you feel, hearing me? There's a difference between isolation and insulation. Isolation is the worst thing you can do when you're going through a hard time. 
When you withdraw from everybody that could speak life into you, it's one of the worst things that you can do. It's not isolation that you need in those moments. Insulation, on the other hand, is, is a protective layer where only, the only thing it gets in is what you allow in. We need insulation in these times where the right voices are speaking to us. I, I, man, I, guys, listen, you must create boundaries in your life. I, I'm talking about boundaries in your marriage, in your family, in your free time. Be careful who you allow to speak into your life, especially when you're in those low moments. Because our world is noisy. Come on, are you hearing me? It, it, is so, it, it gets hard to think straight sometimes. Our world is so noisy. That's why one of the, one of the, I, I've got two things that are therapy to me. Riding my motorcycle and scuba diving. I love, love, love those things. I love jumping on my bike and just riding. Why? Because the only thing I can hear is the wind and those pipes. That's it. Everything is shut out. When I had the opportunity to be able to go scuba diving while we were down in Panama City. Man, I cannot tell you, being 70 to 100 feet underwater down there, just you can't hear anything but your breathing and the bubble therapy because it shuts out all the noise everything that's going on in this world i read this a couple years ago years ago i don't even know who said it but it's so powerful i want to put it up there before he said the world is so noisy it's up to us to take time to quiet our minds and not allow the noise to cloud our purpose in this world it's up to us you know what i believe one of the biggest things that would help you at night is an hour before you go to bed Shut off social media. Shut off news. Don't get on there and see who's doing what or who said what or, or what political party did this or what president said this. or didn't. No, shut it off. Why? Because you go to bed with a lot of that noise still going on in your head. Shut out the noise. Here's my fear. If we don't follow Jesus by withdrawing at times, We'll find ourselves at some point just saying, I quit. What's the point? What's the point of it? Or worse than that, what's worse than that, Kelly? Putting on a mask and just pretending we're still in the game when we're not. Jesus withdrew. I mean, Jesus, think about it. Jesus was fully man, yet fully God, right? Yet even he needed to withdraw at times. And get away. Jesus withdrew to get some time with his father. He withdrew to the one place, the one person he knew he could find refreshing and peace from. So my question, where are you on this Father's Day 2021? Where are you at? Are are you to the point where you're ready to quit? Are you to the point where you're just looking for an escape? Are you withdrawing to the wrong places or, or the wrong people? See, when Jesus heard the news of his friend, he, was, he didn't say, I need to withdraw just to escape. He said, I need to get with the one person that can calm my spirit. And that's Father God. My goal as a follower of Jesus, guys, isn't to just have brief moments in his presence. It's to develop a life where my life every day is lived in the presence of God, in the power of God, and under the authority of God. My goal is to live life in the kingdom of God. That's my goal. 
My goal, guys, is as a dad, my goal in life is to live a life so compelling that my kids say, I want that. My goal for my daughters is, is for them to look and, and know, man, that's what a godly husband looks like. That's what a godly father looks like. That's the goal of being a father and being a dad. For those things to happen, there must be progress and change in our life. The second identity marker of a follower of Jesus, willingness to be moved beyond our own personal pain. Willingness to be moved beyond our own personal pain. Jesus gets word that his friend, his cousin, John, has been killed by Herod. He wants to withdraw and get away. The disciples just, just heard the same news, and Jesus knows that, that it's affecting them as well. He says, hey, guys, let's just go spend some time alone. Let's get away. Let's worship together. Let's go to our favorite camping spot and, and that's out in the middle of nowhere. The crowd follows him there. And look at Jesus' reaction again, verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Compassion. The word compassion, the, the original word, literally means to be moved inside. In other words, he felt their hurt. He felt their pain. He was moved by it. See, here's the truth. Everyone in this room, everyone watching online has some kind of pain going on in their life right now. The people that minister to you. Here's the thing. Someone welcomed you today. Someone shook your hand, smiled at you, showed you to your seat. Someone welcomed your children or their babies into that area. Someone led worship, played an instrument, ran sound, media, lights. And, and, and you don't know what this past week has been like for some of them. Financially, emotionally, spiritually, the hurt they've went through. Yet they showed up and were moved beyond their pain. They allowed themselves to be moved beyond their own personal pain. I challenge you today, guys. Allow Jesus to move you beyond your pain. Don't find, don't say this is where I'm at and then just hunker down. Man, I hope you're kidding me. Allow Jesus to move you beyond your pain, beyond your questions, beyond your anger. Some of you are waiting to follow Jesus when the pain subsides. Maybe some of you are, are waiting to really surrender to Jesus when, when the pain is really gone. But maybe your pain is the platform that God wants to use to help someone else that's in pain. See, I'm not here to minimize your pain. But if you're waiting for the pain to subside before you really follow or before you serve or get involved, what's this place going to look like five years from now? It's going to be filled with people that are still hurt and waiting to really follow and serve and get involved. You've heard me say this before, and it's embarrassing to admit at times, but I, I, there are a lot of times that I don't feel like getting up here on Sunday and preaching to you. I've had a week from hell, or I've had some things going on, and honestly, I just don't, God, I don't feel like getting, going out there and talking to these people. Nothing I say is going to change them anyway. Come on, pastors can have pity parties too. I can't tell you the times that I've had those thoughts and I was moved beyond that and got up here and preached and I saw God moved 
when I was moved beyond my pain. I think there are times and seasons that you focus on your pain and you get healed and you get made whole. I do. But I think the truth is when it comes to following Jesus, although this is not popular, it's not convenient, it's uncomfortable, but the truth is when it comes to following Jesus, the pain that you're feeling, that you're going through, might be the very thing that God wants to use to minister to somebody else. Some of you are going through the hardest seasons of your life right now. Can I say that if you're leaning to Jesus, it may very well prove to be one of the most effective seasons of your life. I I know what some of you are thinking because I thought it. I don't want God to use it. I want God to fix it. Come on. I, I, I get it. I completely understand. And we don't go through life looking for pain. We don't go through life looking for situations to get to us. But life happens. Life brings pain. Life brings hurt. Life brings disappointments. Life brings challenges our way. Maybe you feel like one of the disciples that day and you just, Jesus, let's just send them away. Let's withdraw and get away. They're exhausted physically, emotionally. They're ready for this day to be over. They come to Jesus. Hey, let's just send the crowd away, Jesus. Jesus is like, I know you're exhausted, guys. I know you're hurt. I know you're tired. I know you're grieving. But I don't want you, Matthew, James, Thomas, Andrew, Simon. I don't want you guys to miss out on what it means to be moved beyond your pain and seeing what God can do through that. Feed them. The third identity marker of a follower of Jesus. Sometimes it means doing something that just doesn't make sense. Five loaves of bread, two fish, 15 to 20,000 people. Tell them to sit down and we're going to feed them. Doesn't make sense to me. Come on. I mean, even with the new math, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> 15, 20,000 people, five loaves of two fish. Uh, I mean, basically what they had was a Long John's Happy Meal. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't uh, make sense. Somewhere along the line, though, I don't know what God... We thought that following Jesus was going to make sense all the time. If anything, God... Me and Denise are living proof as pastors of this church that God does stuff that does not make sense. Didn't make sense to us. And to a lot of people that heard we were coming up here to pastor, it didn't make sense to them either. Come on. Somewhere along the line we thought Jesus was following Jesus was supposed to fit into our schedule. I'll give you Sunday mornings, God, maybe an occasional Wednesday. Maybe a man-up breakfast or a women's brunch. But outside of that, God, you know I'm busy. I've got places to go. I think God is like, you're right. You do have places to go and people see. It's just not the places and the people you thought you were going to see. See, part of being a follower of Jesus means there are going to be seasons and times in our life when following him just does not make sense. The disciples had to be thinking, Jesus, this doesn't make sense. But what 
Tell us again what you want us to do. Give me the fish and the bread. Now, I'm going to break it and bless it. Now, start handing it out. They watched Jesus break up five loaves of bread. And don't think our loaves, you know, like the No, here's a, uh, one loaf of bread was like, the, well, like a biscuit. That's what it was. They watched it break them up, put them in a basket. Okay, this basket gets one. This basket gets, I don't know how he did it, but they're thinking, okay. And they start handing it out. Come on, how would you have responded? Just get what you want. <laughs> Wait, what? All right, you get what you want. Following Jesus doesn't always make sense, guys. See, in the middle of their exhaustion, in the middle of their pain, in the middle of their questions and their loss, they just keep following Jesus. And because they kept following Jesus in the middle of the pain, they were partners with him in a miracle. A miracle. Maybe, God, if, you, if you're hurting, you're going through some things you don't understand, maybe if you just keep focused on Jesus, you're going to find yourself on the other end of a miracle. Here's what's funny to me. In the very next chapter, almost the very same miracle happens again. Except this time the Bible says 4,000 men plus women and children. The very next ch chapter, it happens all over again. The disciples respond the same way. Why? Because the disciples are human. We are human. And when you've seen God move and work a miracle, even when you're exhausted... Sometimes it still doesn't make sense even though you've already saw it die. And you want to say, please, I've got nothing left to give. I'm exhausted. Jesus, I'm not in a good place right now. Use somebody else. A fourth. Here, or here's what, this is not. A lot of times we disqualify ourselves when Jesus is trying to equip us. Jesus, I just don't have anything to give. I know I want to equip you with it. Just follow me. Jesus, I'm just tired. I'm ex I know you are. But if you're to step out and begin to follow, I'm going to equip you with what you need to follow. God is wanting to do something through us. And we're like, God, I'm still dealing with this sin. God, I'm still dealing with this addiction. God, I'm still exhausted mentally and physically. I'm hurt, God. And God is looking back saying, you don't think I know all that? Can you just give me what you do have? And allow me to break it and bless it. And you're going to see a miracle take place in your hands. See, some of you, you think your pain disqualifies you. You think your addiction, your sin disqualifies you. You think your doubts or questions disqualify you. You think the hurts, the, the pain, it, it disqualifies you. But in reality, God is wanting to do something in you and through you. And it's in your pain. And it's in your hurts and in your failures and your struggles that you are going to connect people to the source of life. You see here, you've heard me say this before. We may impress people with our strengths, but we connect with people through our weaknesses. Pull that point up for me. We may impress people by our strengths, how strong we are in areas, but it's where we connect with them is when they see our struggles and us still following Jesus in our struggles. We're still trying to stay after Jesus, though we're hurt.
See, the church was never meant to be a meeting place for the morally elite. The church is a place for rejects, the broken, the jacked up, the searching, where God's grace and forgiveness flourishes. That's what the church is supposed to look like. I see people show up at church and they're surprised that it's got jacked up people in it. I'm like, seriously? That's like going to the hospital and being surprised sick people are there. That's what the church is intended for. It's not a museum where you can see saints. That's where you come and become a saint in the making. It's where you come and start the healing process in your life. It's where you come and you bring your junk. You bring your jacked upness. You bring all the things that you're questing several. And God, here's all I've got to give. And Jesus, that's all I'm asking for. And that leads me to my last identity marker of a follower of Jesus. Jesus requires that you give him your only. Jesus, we've only got five loaves of bread. Two fish. That's all we were. That's the only that's all we got. Jesus requires you give him your only. When they come to Jesus and said, Jesus, we only have five loaves and two fish. Jesus didn't look back at them and say, Guys, that's not enough. Are, are you looking at the crowd? Come back when you've got more. Now go scurry the crowd. Go go find uh, everything at venue come know. Oh, is that that's all you've got? That's all I need. You're tired, you're exhausted. You don't feel like you have much to give. Jesus says, give me your only. Dads, some of you say it's Father's Day, and you, Kelly, you just got up here and said, I want to honor you for knocking it. Stick it. Kelly, you don't know there's days I didn't, I, I didn't stick it out. There's days I've, I, I've hollered at my kids. I, I've not been a great dad. What have I got to bring? Bring Whatever you have. Here's what I know. There are people in this house that are tired. They're worn out. I know, I, I know personally of people that are dealing with sicknesses in their body. With bad reports that the doctors have given them. I know personally of people in here that, that, that are dealing with, with, with the fact on this Father's Day that they don't have a dad that's existing in their lives. I know it. I know the people in here that are struggling with addictions, with sin issues, and you're tired and you're frustrated and you don't want to go. I'm telling you, give him your only. I want to close with this video. If you'll help me, make sure that video's pumped up for me. Okay. You can write everything down if you want to. Be brave enough to write every one of your goals down. But I'm going to tell you something. Life's going to hit you in your mouth and you got to do me a huge favor. Your why has to be greater than that knocked out. And I love it. Buster Douglas got knocked out. Nobody ever got knocked out by Mike Tyson and ever got back up. It was almost a 10 count. He was stumbling. They were four, three, two, one. Ding, ding, ding. Saved by the bell. And goes to his corner. The whole world is like, oh, that's it. Once he comes back out, that's it. Mike's gonna just hammer him. And exactly that, Mike Tyson came out like, I got him. I got this kid up against the rope. Listen to me, many of you right now, life's got you up against the rope. You can't give up. You can't give in. Listen to me, if it was easy, everybody would do it. And if life's got you backed up, I need you to do what Buster Douglas did. Buster Douglas start fighting back. 
world was shot. Goliath has been knocked down. What happened? And then what's the Buster Douglas? And they asked Buster Douglas simply like, what happened? And Buster Douglas said, listen to me, it's real simple. Before my mother died, she told the whole world that I was going to be Mike Tyson. And two days before the fight, my mother died. Buster Douglas had a decision to make. When his mother died, he could die with his mother, or he made a decision, I can wake up and I can live for mom. Your wives gonna push you when you can't push yourself. Cause some days you gonna say, I don't wanna get up, but that wise gonna say, I'll push yourself, get up. Your mama needs you, your daddy needs you, your children need you, get up. When you wanna quit and give up, your wives gonna give you that lift that you need to get to the next level, your wives. And when that thing tells you to quit, you look at it in his eye and say, I ain't going nowhere. I will break you before you break me. You've been through so much hell. You don't quit now. It's the 10th round. You got two more to go. And when you get to success, it's not about skill. When you get to a certain level of success, it's about stamina. It's about you won't break me. You can't take me. I fought too long. I fought too hard. I'm unbreakable now. Everybody can stand up and do good when everything is all good. Everybody can smile when the sun shines. Everybody can do right when everything is going right. Everybody can do that. But everybody can't face opposition, adversity, and challenges and say, I've been waiting on you to come. I'm going to embrace you, and I'm going to figure out a way to use you because you will never turn me into a different person. You will never make me a person that people don't recognize before the adversity. When life knocks your butt down, I need you to get back up, and I need you to go heavy on it. When uncertainty creeps in, I need you to get up and get right back on the thing that knocked you off, and I need you to go heavy on it. When something doesn't turn out the way you wanted to turn out, I need you to attack the very thing that didn't turn out the way that you wanted to turn out, and I need you to go heavy on it. It's never about the competitors. It's about what we possess and what we do. Learn to be your own booster. Start building yourself up. Start encouraging yourself. Start saying, I can do this. I can make this happen. When I start trying to convince myself I can be a businessman after flopping and failing and losing thousands of dollars and feeling stupid and dumb, I had to talk to myself because people were saying to me that I was dumb. I had to say, no, 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 Les. Hey, hey, come on, man, get yourself together. You can handle this. You just haven't figured it out yet. It's all right. This is your training period. This is a tuition. You have to pay for what you don't know. You've got to say yes to your life. You've got to say yes. Yes to my dreams. Yes to me. I can make it. Yes, I can. Doesn't matter how many failures I've made. Doesn't matter how many mistakes I've endured. Doesn't matter about my defeats. Doesn't matter about what I've done. Yes. Yes. I don't care about the fact I'm in a hole now. Doesn't matter about where I am. The last chapter to my life has not been written yet. If you judge me now, you'll judge me prematurely. I'm still in the process of transforming my life. I'm still in the process of becoming. Yes. Still in the process. Some of you ready to quit and give up. You're just in the process. You're just in the process. But Kelly, I, I just don't have any more to give. I'm telling you now, it's not the time to quit. Your children need you to keep fighting. Your marriage needs you to keep fighting. Those people you work with need you to keep fighting. Those people in your life, they need you to keep fighting. And what he said, get up off your butt and say, I, this will not break me. But Kelly. 
All I've got is five loaves and two fish. All I've got is this divorce. All I've got is this temper. All I've got is this GD of mine. All I've got is this sin I'm struggling with. All I've got is this addiction. All I've got is this disability. All I've got is this bad report from the doctor. All I've got is an absent father, absent mom, absent parent that I don't even really know what it looks like. It's all I've got. And Jesus says, give me your only. Because you are not out. In fact, you're going to come back stronger than ever. Stand with me across this room.